0: This edition of Farming the Countryside is brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com. Welcome to Farming the Countryside. I'm Andrew McCrae. Great operators are always looking for ways to make their business better. So what changes should you be considering? A great resource is something called PFR. We take a look at what has been learned and the best ways to make positive impacts on our bottom line in 2023. It's our topic for this week's Farming the Countryside, brought to you by Pivot Bio. When it comes to using nitrogen on my corn, the more predictable, the better. That's why I've used Pivot Bio Proven 40 on my corn for the past two seasons. With Pivot Bio, I know my crops are getting the nitrogen they need, no matter the weather. And now, that same predictability is available right on the corn seed. Pivot Bio Proven 40 on seed gives growers even more flexibility with their nitrogen plant. And in times of rising input prices, it's more important than ever to know that you can have a proven source of nitrogen for your corn. To learn more, contact your local sales rep or simply go to pivotbio.com. Like many of you, we are always looking at changes we should make in our operation. It may be ways to save money, make the most of our time, or achieve larger yields. But how do you decide what changes to make? One great resource I found is something called PFR. Jason Gayheimer is the PFR manager at Beck's, and he'll talk about what that is. You don't have to be one of their customers to access loads of great in-field research. And I sat down with him to see what we've learned and how best to apply that knowledge. Jason, we're going to talk about PFR, but some people won't be familiar with what that is. So let's just begin with what is PFR?
1: Yeah, PFR is, stands for Practical Farm Research. So, and it, it is exactly what it what it sounds like, right? And so we do a hundred percent agronomic research to help farmers succeed. So we do anything around tillage, nitrogen fungicide, testing new products, new practices, all of those things. Anything that farmers, we hear from the field consistently are, are typically the things we want to take a look at. The, thing, the What questions do they have and how can we help answer those and give them a 100% unbiased look? Uh, it's pretty hard nowadays to find a lot of unbiased uh, third-party research and so we're not a third-party contract company uh, but we do test other companies products and things Uh, no money changes hands there it's a hundred percent unbiased and and the whole reason we do it is to help farmers succeed sonny knew that there was going to be a need for more of this type of research and so he invests in in that and we just want to help farmers succeed through the program
0: we're going to talk about some specific areas here in a moment, but how do you decide what to do and how many things are you doing each year? Because I've seen your research before, you have a lot going on under this heading.
1: Yeah, yeah. So uh, we decide based on what we're hearing from the field and what, what are the hot topics and what are the questions we're getting that are coming in. And and so we usually have somewhere between 80 and 100 different studies. And usually a lot of those, most of those studies are replicated at four to five different PFR locations. And we're now up to seven uh, Beck owned PFR locations locations with three or four cooperator uh, sites as well.
0: So you have all this research going on. There are three specific areas we want to key in on that you've been talking a lot with folks about. First of all, let's talk about getting the most out of my herbicide. What is it you're testing and what are we learning and sharing with farmers?
1: Yeah, um, we, we want to make sure they're getting uh, multiple modes of actions out there with the herbicide and, and just being able to control that weed the the weed spectrum that they have, and also you know delay you know resistance is is almost inevitable, but we can help delay it. You know we're probably not going to stop it, and so just making sure we're we're in front of that, and and we can help them succeed through that. The other thing you know we want them to be profitable through every spray pass. So the main topics we're talking about uh, today are fungicide and foliar products, and and helping make that spray pass profitable. And so really it's it's looking at things like when you're talking about carrier or, uh, fungicide, it's looking the carrier rate make sure we have enough carrier rate with that ground rig Uh, also time of day something that doesn't cost you any money Uh, but there's a big benefit to being able to put as much of the fungicide on as you can we know you can't spray every acre in the morning but as many acres as possible in the morning when there's a dew on uh, really is effective and helps and and there's no added cost there right it's just doing it at a trying to adjust and do it at a different time than maybe what we we have in the past and uh, water conditioning conditioning that water that's another another key thing there so
0: Let's talk about the fungicide for a moment. You mentioned about the ground rig. Have your studies looked at ground rig versus aerial, and and how much am I giving up if I go with one over the other?
1: Yeah, so that's been a, a pretty elusive study for us. We've tried it many times, and it's really hard to coordinate with a company that can fly it on for us. And the and a far, it's got to be field scale. We can't do it in these little plots, right? Uh, so coordinating with a with a with a grower and and with a pilot and making sure things get sprayed in the right spots, harvested in the right spots, all those things. It's been pretty elusive for us. This year, we've got. Six or seven trials that have been successfully completed to this point. They've been sprayed correctly. That everything has gone perfect. They look great, uh, no issues. So we just gotta we gotta get to that through that final stage here. And I think we're gonna have a really good chunk of data of aerial versus ground. We also have one of those fields where we, we threw a drone in there. There's treatments with uh, sprayed with a drone as well. So I think I think drone applications are becoming a hotter topic. A lot lot more people are investing in. I know a couple of people have started their own their own business of just just buying a fleet of drones and deploying those throughout a field. Right. I, I right now. I don't know that it's practical for a grower to buy his own drone uh because you're going to need multiples probably to get across acres in a timely manner, so just buying a drone to try to cover your acres is probably not uh the the best thing yet, um, but I know it it's we're getting closer to the point where we may see a lot more growers have their own drones or fleet of drones so yeah.
0: As of yet, though, not enough research to know if there's any difference between the two.
1: No, and we know there's going to be some differences. um, But uh, the one thing we also know is that not everyone has their own ground rig, right? So we get this question all the time of arrow versus ground. And I'm guessing uh, what we're going to see is that if you have a ground rig, you're going to be more profitable utilizing your ground rig to do that if you can get across it, right? Because because you can make sure, you can ensure that you control your own destiny in terms of getting out there at the right growth stage, maybe doing more in the morning than what, if you're relying on someone else to do it, what time they're going to be there doing it. Uh, so I think there, there's definitely an advantage to the ground rig. Um, but there are certain fields in areas that they can't do that and they have to have a plane so I think the data is going to be great but I still don't know that it's going to be this this factor of oh wow that's the best that's how everyone should do it that's not going to be the scenario I think it's gonna be great data it's gonna be great to have that but there's a benefit and there's a time and a place for both
0: you mentioned water conditioners under this heading first of all, I think that can mean different things to different people. So kind of describe what you're talking about. And then what are you seeing as far as conditioning that water for herbicides? Uh,
1: yeah, just conditioning the water, the, the, we got a lot of hard water and getting that, getting everything adjusted correctly, getting the pH correct, and just softening that water and making sure that, uh, herbicides or fungicides or foliar products that they get into the plant effectively, whether that's to kill the plant, if it's a weed or to get into the plant to help from a nutritional standpoint or a protection standpoint. And so I think that's very important. It's very important to take the time to make sure that water is conditioned appropriately through all those things and be patient with it i, I know a lot of guys that i think sometimes will condition they're like yeah we condition our water but we throw it in real quick then we throw something else in real quick we're not giving it enough time to maybe condition that water before we start throwing other things in there so uh, i think there's still a little bit more to be learned there and there's a lot of great products that we've tested recently uh, that are pretty easy to use and very helpful how do I know
0: if I need to condition my water? Are you just having people go and do water tests or how did they know in the first place what to do?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's definitely test your water. What I'd also say, if you farm in the Midwest, you probably need to condition your water. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, testing. (laughs) All right, good. Underneath
0: this herbicide topic, any other things that you're sharing with folks that say, Here's what we've learned over the last few years with PFR research, and you need to do this.
1: Yeah, there's power in the pre. We talk a lot about that uh, a bit of putting a strong pre emerge down. That way, it saves on these on these post herbicides. Um, we don't have to control. Try to rely as heavily on these post herbicides, and as there, there's some resistance building up. Those those pre's uh, are really helpful. Multiple modes of action throughout the season, multiple residuals, and just being able, you know the best weed is the a weed that never emerges. So that's that's where we need to be. Sure.
0: Another big heading for you are talking about planter equipment and I'll let you take it from there because I know for, on our farm, we've personally made changes based on your research here. So what are you learning about how we put the seed in and some of the different attachments and things we can use?
1: Yeah, so we're, we're hitting on that because that's the number one question I have gotten over the last two years is I got a new planter or I've got an older planter and I want to make some adjustments to it. I want to buy, I want to upgrade it. What, where do I start? And for me, there's, there's three things that I start with and it's always the same three, right in order. Aftermarket closing wheels. Uh, hydraulic downforce and nitrogen on both sides of the row. Starter on both sides of the row when it comes to nitrogen on that planter. So those things, those three things work well together to for the for the same common goal: a robust and uniform root development. Uh, a lot of guys, maybe five, six, seven years ago, when we started looking at aftermarket wheels, we went to the one one solid rubber, one more of an aggressive spike wheel. What that does is that creates a lot of root development towards that spike. Right? We don't want that. Same thing with starter on one side of the row. Now that we've we've seen starter on both sides of the row and and the yield benefit and the consistency to that it blows my mind honestly how dumb we were on putting starter on one side of the row it just it makes so much sense to put it on both right and it's the best placement maybe not the best time to put all your nitrogen on but it's a it's the best placement to put a pretty good front load with that planter so aftermarket closing wheels two together a uh, hydraulic downforce making sure we've got the right ground contact at all times and not creating too much compaction as well as getting the correct correct seating depth and stabilizing that row unit. I talk a lot about utilizing utilizing hydraulic downforce because it stabilizes that row unit. Guys will say, well, I want to spend money on my meter and they've got spring downforce. Well, that's great. That meter will, a lot of these meters, you can spend a lot of money and you can get them singulate 99 plus percent all the time, right? Well, it still has to, a lot of guys, if you don't have a uh, some sort of a high speed mechanism to deliver it down to the ground, it's still got to drop it from that meter to the ground. So if you don't stabilize that row unit, you could lose money on your investment of what you spent in your meter if you're not stabilizing that row unit at first
0: so some of these things you've talked about what's the research show as far as how much i might be picking up a bushel or two here or there is it much bigger than that because closing wheels some people may say ah not a big deal but from what i've seen it can be a big deal
1: yeah, that's why it's my number one, because uh, you think about all the things you could upgrade on your planter. It's one of the most cost-effective ones. Um, you know, high, things like hydraulic downforce and 2 by 2 by 2 systems and meters and all those things, those are all more expensive than putting two aftermarket closing wheels on. And on corn, we're anywhere from 2.5 to 5 bushel gain, depending on which system, which wheels uh, that we're utilizing. And soybeans, you know, we're in that 2 to 3. But you, everybody's like, ah, oh, it's just a couple of bushel. Well, add that up across your acres, all your acres every year that's a big deal that's a big profit um, it doesn't take you don't have to cover very many acres to to get a payoff there when it comes to hydraulic downforce our data thus far has been in, in nice uniform plots and we're still picking up uh, two three even four bushels sometimes with fully automated hydraulic downforce making sure we're as we're going out through the field every single row all the time is is putting the right amount of pressure whether that's down or up uh, throughout that field and that's a big deal and, and honestly our data is minimized compared to what we'll see in a field scale scenario with more variability and rougher conditions of what we have in these nice uniform plots so uh the way i like to look at it i get this a lot is they'll say that's oh, expensive i don't want you to make the decision based off a sticker shock i want you to make the decision penciled out based off of acres to pay off that investment
0: have you done much research yet on some of the high speed planters versus some of our older planters is there one better than the other
1: yeah so we've we've worked with all three of the the high speed technologies on the market now the sure you know sure speed uh exact emerge and precisions um Uh, speed tube and so all of them work as advertised right and we we haven't had them all three in the same field uh but we've we've worked and we have trials across the last three or four years on all three of those systems and they all three work very very well uh and they do what they say they're advertised to do they i mean we know their meters can singulate and then that those delivery systems they can deliver it down at high speeds and make sure that you know that seed sticks that landing if you will to keep that perfect placement and perfect spacing throughout the field
0: So kind of underneath this same heading, I know you've done a lot of work on the timing of planting, and of course sometimes weather gets in our way, but especially with beans as some of your research about getting them in early. So talk about how important when I plant is, and does that influence them whether I should Jump up and try to get one of these high speed planters. Does it, in a sense, pencil out in the end?
1: Yeah. So with soybeans planting, the two biggest things we've seen over time to increase your soybean yields is planting early and an R three fungicide. So planting a little bit earlier. Really, the ideal time to plant beans is when you're planting corn, right? And so if you're utilizing one planter, you depending on how many acres you have, you might want to consider uh, buying another planter to be able to plant soybeans at the same time as corn. Uh, You know, I asked this at a lot of field shows over the years. Is you know, what do you? What's your operation? What do you do? Do you plant corn first, bean first, both? Uh, one or the other, and a lot. You know, there's there's more and more guys shifting towards. I'm a, I start with beans, or I plant both at the same time. More so than five, ten years ago, where it was I plant my corn, and then I'll worry about my beans when I'm done perfecting my corn. Um, and so I think there's a, there's a lot of yield to be had by planting earlier, especially, you know, we offer Escalate seed treatment. You, you can't buy untreated soybeans from Bex Hybrids. and there's a reason for that. We guarantee a stand. And when it comes to planting earlier, you, there's some risks involved with planting earlier with soybeans. But when you have a great seed treatment on there, whether that's ours or someone else's, uh, that's really beneficial when we start pushing earlier planting dates on soybeans.
0: Well, and you talk about earlier planting dates. Because of the seed treatments we have anymore, can we really push putting that seed in there and letting it set for three weeks or four I saw that in our area this year and that was some of the best yields some of that seed that you said ah it'll never come up or it won't do any good it did
1: yeah it's funny you, you bring that up um, and i'm not I'm not uh, promoting this but uh, we actually we, we do a planting date study every year and we try to plant super we try to plant when you' when you really shouldn't be planting right as long as the soil is fit the ground is fit. And so we were at an opportunity on March 17th to get out there and plant this year. We planted corn and soybeans, those corn and soybeans. And the ground was fit. Soil temperatures, right, weren't, weren't quite there. Um, and, and obviously we don't recommend that. But what I've learned from this and through the plan date over the years is temperature doesn't matter as much as cold and wet. Cold, cool. I'm going to say cool, not cold. Cool temperatures, soil temperatures, aren't as big of a deal as cold, cold and wet okay so when our when we did our march 17th planting date ground was fit uh temperatures were a little below 50 right they weren't ideal um and it, this is just a, this is just one of those trials right but it sat that seed for the corn and soybean sat in the sat in the ground for seven weeks seven weeks and, w- and we had a beautiful stand when it finally emerged it emerged evenly it and you know 90 plus percent of it came up we had a really good stand now i'm not saying go out there and plant ridiculously early like that or, or disregard soil temperature and all those things uh, but when you have a great seed treatment on like that um, it really protected that seed and and it was great it, it was amazing to see how long it sat in the ground it was seven weeks before it came up
0: if you could, though, would you suggest trying to plant in some different windows and plant early? Because you mentioned you never know what you're going to get for weather and pollination. So is it good to spread out a little of my risk? Or do you know from the
1: research? Absolutely. Uh, I mean, that, I like to spread that risk out a little bit. Um, so especially with soybeans, I don't mind. guy. If you want to get a little more riskier with this, with planting some soybeans in a little earlier than you do, go for it. Just don't plant the whole farm. Don't go crazy. Uh, but try some things. Look at the forecast. The, ne- the next 48 hours. Are pretty critical right and that's why we didn't have a failure on march 17th when we planted into cooler temperatures because we didn't get there was there was good soil moisture there but we didn't get a we didn't get it saturated in the next 48 hours even in the next week after that it never got fully saturated we had oxygen in the soil that's what's really going to hurt you if you go into plant early like that and then we still get some a lot of rain and it's still cold and there's not a lot of oxygen in the soil and it sits there that's when we're in trouble
0: The other big area that you've been sharing with folks is about nitrogen. And, of course, it's on everybody's mind because historically high right now for nitrogen. So what about what sources should I have been using, the timing, what things are you finding?
1: yeah um, nitrogen uh, split applying is is just so valuable we've done a lot of nitrogen systems trials where we look at different forms different timings one shot application uh, split applied even uh, even doing a three split application uh, using wide drops late and all those things and what we have really learned is uh, there's a big value in starter on both sides of the row once again two by two by two so being able to put a, a good amount on with the planter on both sides of the row and then coming back side dress between v3 to v6 it's been really really hard for us to beat that consistently that's been kind of the cream of the crop system for us at, at multiple locations. So, uh, we're going to continue to try different things, but, um, that's the biggest one split applying and, and making sure, you know, ideally I want all my nitrogen on by, I know, I know the plant takes it up late, a lot up late, but you don't want to, you don't, there's a lot of things that are determined earlier than that. And you want a lot of your nitrogen on earlier than that. But the thing is, is being efficient with it, placing it accurately. Um, and then also I like to have all of it on by that B7, B8 time frame and um and that works well and then it, y drops when we talk about y drops for me you can side dress a y drops if you get some in, a good rain incorporation instead of maybe a coulter down the middle but um you know our first y drop studies we used to do we i think our we never saw great results because we i think we were saving too much nitrogen for too late right my i think the place for y drops late are rescue applications only not a planned approach what about
0: my nitrogen I'm going to put on early? Fall applied anhydrous still a good option for me or what do I want to do?
1: It's definitely not going to be the first uh option I recommend. I'm okay. um, not a fan of fall anhydrous. I know logistically sometimes you have to do what works right for your operation, right? And I, and I get that, but that's not going to be that's not going to be my ideal scenario. Even even just uh anhydrous all anhydrous in the spring upfront pre-plant incorporated isn't my recommendation either. Maybe a little bit upfront and then a little bit in season. Um just being able to split it is is that's the number one thing really Spl- uh, being able to split apply and being accurate and efficient with your placement
0: Anything else under the heading of fertilizer? I mean, nitrogen gets all the attention usually, or a lot of it, but what other nutrients am I perhaps overlooking or need to think more about?
1: Oh, yeah, you need to think about all of them. <laughs> and we and we could sit here for an hour and talk about that. But one of the things that we're looking at is just fall fertility, right? Broadcast versus banding now is is a topic. It's not new. Strip-till and banding isn't new, but it's one of those things that's made. It's, it's coming back and making a comeback on, especially with fertilizer prices. Can we be more efficient with it? Um, if we're banding it right below the row, can we cut back a little bit? And so we're doing some banding versus broadcast research. We're doing conventional till uh, broadcast versus no-till broadcast versus strip-till banding. And we're doing different rates, and we're doing it across multiple years, multiple sites, and we'll see how things pan out.
0: You mentioned the tillage. I know you're doing you know work all the time on conventional versus no-till and everything in between what are you learning because this is going to continue to be important as we think about more sustainable farming methods and carbon credits and so forth what's the research telling us
1: uh, there's not one size that fits all uh, different soil types different geographies there's a lot of things come into play you think about minnesota um no-till's not not king up there it's just not and it and for good reason There, it's colder soils they need to they need to bury that residue they don't have a lot of, of residue breakdown over winter and so they bury it they get the darker soil up then they they really need that dark soil to be be face up right to be able to to warm that soil in the spring they don't get the really warm days like we do they're still planting when there's frost in the ground sometimes um so one size doesn't fit all with tillage and so we're going to continue to run those type of trials and and see what we learn but um you know we actually here at indiana we have the longest running uh tillage study in the state of indiana and we're in its conventional versus no-till and we're going to continue to do that and there's really not a big difference over all those years of data on corn or soybeans between the two right it's not like one has a a 10-15 bushel advantage over the other beans is right there what really what we see every single year i can usually i can i can tell you every year which tillage practice is going to win by what the season we had if it was hot and dry no till's winning it if we had if we had adequate soil moisture conventional till in the in this environment that we have here and the in the soil types we have usually pulls ahead so uh it's pretty predictable but you can't predict that ahead of time sure
0: what other things have you been looking at that are going to be interesting to folks, whether you have the data yet or you're looking forward to getting at the end of the season? What other things are you looking at?
1: Uh, some of the new things we're looking at is tire pressure. So we're, we we put um, um, different tire inflation kits on a couple tractors and then and, uh, and looking at what, does tire pressure matter on your planner tractor? Um, we, we think it does. And because there's an ideal, there's an ideal uh, pressure for going down the road that you need. And there's a diff that, but the ideal pressure in the field is different than what it is on the road. So, you know, when you pull into a field and you're unfolding that planter, can you deflate those tires a little bit, get better surf, get, you know, spread out that compaction across that footprint, make a wider footprint, less PSI. And there's even tires out there. Uh, being designed to be able to be to be ran on the road in the field all the time at really low pressures, maybe maybe down to six psi and be able to ex- expand that footprint um, so something cool we 're looking into now granted we're doing this in plots and we're doing it with smaller, a little bit smaller equipment than, you know, we don't have DB sixties out here with uh, you know, four or 500 horse tractors on them that way a little more than ours. So um, we know there's going to be a bigger benefit when you take it to the field with that type of equipment, but uh, just something new we're looking into. It's interesting. It's it's one of those things that, you know, going back to the basics of just making sure everything's dialed in everything all the way to your tire pressure. Right. And then new things that we're looking at uh, short corn. So as short corn is becoming a, a bigger topic in the marketplace and as we're we are actually moving into Nebraska and, and that's an even bigger deal out there, I think. Um, we're looking at how do you manage short corn? So we don't have any short corn available yet. I think the day will come that we will. And I know there's other companies working on it and we're, we're right there with them. Um, but what we want to learn agronomically is how do you manage short corn? So we got row width and population trials. We've got uh, fungicide carrier rate and we've got nitrogen rate trials. So does that short corn, that shorter stature corn need managed different in terms of those, those aspects?
0: Before we wind up, you mentioned Nebraska. We should mention this research goes on all across the Midwest, correct?
1: Yeah. Yeah, so we've got – obviously it started here in Atlanta, Indiana at our headquarters, and we've expanded. We've got a location in Henderson, Kentucky, London, Ohio, Effingham, Illinois, El Paso, Illinois, Colfax, Iowa, and now just newly opened this year, Goner, Nebraska.
0: And people can access this data, and it's free to anybody, correct?
1: Yeah, yeah. So it's all online on our website. Every year we print a book, but not everything fits in that book anymore. Otherwise, it'd be about a five or 600-page book. And so we just kind of condense down what we think we need to publish in an actual Uh, printed version and then that that version is also available online as pdf and then all the additional research that didn't make it into that is online in another pdf as well so yeah everything is is accessible free to every farmer out there because once again the main goal of this is to help farmers succeed
0: and that's your job is to oversee a lot of this, correct?
1: My job's exciting uh, because the Beck family gives, gives me the freedom to operate. And, you know, decisions aren't made by money. They're made by, okay, is that a decision you need to make based on will that help a farmer succeed? Is it the right decision for the farmer? And so that's exciting. We have a great team, uh, PFR team across our entire marketing area. Uh, I'm just privileged to work with them day in and day out.
0: Jason, I appreciate the time.
1: Yep. Thank you very much.
0: If you want to find the research, just type Beck's PFR into your browser and you should have no trouble finding it. I think you'll be interested in a lot of the work that they've compiled. Thanks for listening to this week's show. Remember, you can follow Farming the Countryside on Facebook, Instagram, YouTube, and TikTok. Just type in Farming the Countryside. We're always using those social media platforms to share more information, pictures, and videos during the week. And you can hear these shows in a variety of ways as well at farmingthecountryside.com on many local radio stations, or on your favorite podcast platform. I'm Andrew McCray. I'll catch you next time on Farming the Countryside. This edition of Farming the Countryside has been brought to you by Pivot Bio Proven. Turn to a better nitrogen. Learn more at pivotbio.com.